0: We want our children to have the best chance to live fulfilling lives, but can you keep up with all the books and scientific research on parenting and fit the information into your own philosophy on how to raise kids? Welcome to Your Parenting Mojo, the podcast that does the work for you by investigating and examining respectful, research-based parenting tools to help kids thrive. Now, welcome your host, Jen Lumenlon.
1: welcome to the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. We have a pretty interesting topic lined up for today, or at least I think so. We're going to talk about grit. If you've heard about grit over the last couple of years, it's probably because of one woman named Angela Duckworth, who's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania and who invented what she calls the grit scale. She won a MacArthur Genius Award for her research on grit in 2013. She tells a story about how she developed this scale that goes like this. Several years ago, the U.S. Army was having trouble figuring out which of their 1,200 new cadets were going to make it through the grueling seven-week training program at West Point and which were going to flunk out. The Army had developed their own measure called the Whole Candidate Score, which was a weighted average of SAT or ACT exam scores, high school rank, an expert appraisal of leadership potential, and performance on physical fitness tests. But it turned out that the Whole Candidate Score actually wasn't very good at predicting who would make it through the seven-week training. In 2004, Professor Duckworth gave the grit scale that she'd been developing to the incoming class of West Point cadets. And it asked questions like how likely you are to get discouraged by setbacks and how often your interests change. And it turned out that while the quitters had indistinguishable whole candidate scores from the cadets who made it through the training, the grit score was, quote, an astoundingly reliable, end quote, predictor of who made it through training and who did not. At this point, you might be wondering how gritty you are yourself, which is actually pretty easy to test. Just Google grit scale and hit the first link that pops up. I'll put the link in the references as well. I just took it and I scored four and a half on a scale of one to five, which is apparently higher than 90 percent of the population in a quote recent study that isn't named. I guess I'm not enormously surprised. I think of myself as a pretty determined person. I tend to think carefully before signing up to a project or a goal, but once I'm in, I'm in and I'm 100% committed to the end. So grit isn't about talent or luck or how intensely you might want something in the moment, but instead it's about your passion and perseverance for long-term goals. I should say the test is pretty easy to fake, though. It's not that hard to guess what the right answer is when you have to rate your response to the statement I am a hard worker, or I am diligent and I never give up. So Professor Duckworth wrote about all of this in her 2016 book called Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance, which I read recently. My first instinct after reading a book that seems pretty good and is well referenced is to reach out to the author and say she might like to be interviewed, but then I started doing some reading around. The first thing I found was a long profile of her in National Geographic, of all places, saying that she routinely declines requests for interviews, including the one from the National Geographic journalist, who finally tracked down her personal phone number and reached her directly. Apparently, the journalist's grittiness persuaded Professor Duckworth to do the interview. And then secondly, I found some studies saying that maybe, just maybe, grit isn't quite such the big deal that Professor Duckworth makes it out to be. She hopes it will be the thing that we can teach poor children that will help them to succeed in school. And it turns out that this is far from clear. So ultimately, I decided we could have more fun by digging into this ourselves and seeing by the end of the episode, whether grit is a trait that we want to try to encourage in our children or not. So we've said that grit is about passion and perseverance. Professor Duckworth spends most of her book talking about the perseverance side of the equation. So we'll just touch briefly on passion first. Passion is sparked by an interest and intrinsic enjoyment in what you do. I wrote my psychology master's thesis on what motivates children to learn, so I can say she's right on the mark here. We actually don't know much about what it is that gets us initially interested in a topic, but once we are interested in it, if we then learn more about it and are encouraged to learn more about it by the people we love, then that interest can blossom into a passion. Professor Duckworth provides case studies throughout the book of highly successful people she's interviewed, as well as some highly successful people, she apparently wasn't able to interview, but she read their books and she quotes them as if she had interviewed them. And I think it's fair to say that all of them were passionate about their work. This is really not too hard to wrap your head around. A lot of studies have come to the conclusion that people are not only happier, but they perform better when they're interested in their work. For many people, this interest is linked to the concept of purpose, the idea that their work somehow matters in the world because it's connected to the well-being of others, or I suppose to another thing like the planet. As a side note, the book never resolves the tension between applying the concept of grit to classroom-based learning and the fact that interest and passion are a key component of grit. Unfortunately, much of the learning in school that occurs is not based on students' interest; It's based on what other people say they think students should find interesting. So in a way, if we're looking at grit as a way of improving student outcomes, which Professor Duckworth apparently hopes we can do, we're trying to improve students' perseverance on things they don't care about much. It seems like that could be a problem, but we'll come back to that later. In addition to passion and purpose, Professor Duckworth briefly mentions that hope is apparently important as well, a rising to the occasion kind of perseverance that keeps us going when things get tough and to get back up when we get knocked down. But the bulk of the book is dedicated to the perseverance component of grit, so that's where we're going to spend the most time as well. Professor Duckworth describes perseverance as the capacity to practice After you've developed an interest in an area, it's the devotion to a rigorous, committed, never-ending practice that leads to mastery. It's finding your weaknesses and addressing them day after day and saying, whatever it takes, I want to improve. Our society is actually quite biased against the kind of practice that it takes to be great. We want to believe that greatness happened because a person was deeply talented. Professor Chia Jung Tse, which I hope I haven't horribly mispronounced at University College London, conducted an experiment where she had professional musicians listen to clips of two other musicians playing the piano. One is described as an innately talented player, while the other is a striver who has worked hard. The professional musicians didn't know that the two players were actually the same player, playing different parts of the same piece. In direct contradiction to their stated beliefs about the importance of effort versus talent, The professional musicians said the naturally talented pianists were more likely to succeed and more likely to be hireable. In a follow-up study, a set of adults read a profile of a striver entrepreneur, while another set read a profile of a naturally talented entrepreneur. All participants then listened to the same audio recording of a business proposal and were told that it was made by the entrepreneur they'd just read about. Again, the naturally talented entrepreneur was judged as more likely to be successful and more hireable. When the participants were asked to back one entrepreneur or the other, the striver had to have four more years of leadership experience and an additional $40,000 in startup capital before the participants were as likely to invest with the striver as with the natural. As a profile of Professor Duckworth in The Atlantic so eloquently put it, we don't like strivers because they invite self-comparisons. If what separates, say, Roger Federer from you and me is nothing but the number of hours spent at deliberate practice, as the most extreme behaviorists argue, our enjoyment of the OS Open could be interrupted by the thought that there but for the grace of grit go I. So as a society, we value natural talent. But if hard work gets people to the same place and they can just hide the hard work, we can be accepting of that as well. We don't want to see those hours of practice or the mistakes that went into something great The Atlantic article author Jerry Usim did as Professor Duckworth suggested and tried to find video footage of people practicing, and he wasn't able to find much at all. He said the closest he got was the discovery of an early Rolling Stones draft of Start Me Up, which apparently does not work at all well as a reggae tune. The attractiveness of the perseverance narrative, of course, cannot be underestimated for an American audience. We might prioritize talent above all else, but the country's story is built on the idea of the value of hard work and its ability to lift you out of whatever circumstances you might find yourself in. It's the old Protestant work ethic in new clothes. The narrative isn't always true, of course. There are plenty of people who find themselves in circumstances that hard work cannot get them out of, despite what conservative politicians might have us believe. But I think the idea that they should try anyway is very American. Perhaps this partly explains why Professor Duckworth's book is ranked number 286 in all books on amazon.com, but only number 764 on amazon.co.uk. Hardly a scientific study, of course, since Professor Duckworth is American and does a lot more publicity work here, but perhaps the difference in culture is one factor. Professor Stephen Meyer at the University of Colorado has done a lot of work on understanding how rats respond to stress. He found that if he gave young rats electric shocks that they could switch off by turning a wheel, they grew up to be more adventurous than normal rats. But young rats who had no control over the duration of their electric shocks grew up with what psychologists call learned helplessness. If they were then shocked as adults, they behaved very timidly. When I think about the cultural implications of this, I imagine American children in disadvantaged circumstances pushing against the sides of the box in which they find themselves getting shocked over and over again and learning not to push anymore. But being English myself, I imagine English children looking at the box in which they find themselves and thinking, yep, it's a box. I'm supposed to be in a box. And they don't even try to touch the sides. So there are a number of ideas to explore here. Professor Duckworth was a math teacher before she went back to graduate school. First, she taught in a private school, although its website says it is not and has never been a, quote, fancy private school, and that it is, quote, chiefly interested in serving whoever wishes to enroll. Later, she taught in the only public school in San Francisco that admits students on the basis of academic merit. And as an aside here, Professor Duckworth doesn't mention the school in New York was private and actually implies it was a pretty gritty public school when she says that most of her students, quote, lived in the housing projects clustered between avenues A and D. End quote, in Manhattan, which made me think that her students were from a disadvantaged background. But then I found out the tuition is listed on the school's website as $20,500 a year for incoming kindergartners. When she got to San Francisco, one of her students was in her regular math class rather than the advanced placement math class. But he turned in consistently perfect work, so she got him transferred to the AP class. He didn't always get A's in the AP class, but he went to the teacher and asked for help when he needed it. And he ultimately ended up getting a Ph.D. in mechanical engineering from UCLA. He quite literally became a rocket scientist. This is just one example of how some of Professor Duckworth's former students appeared to be using effort to overcome potential deficiencies in talent. Now, isn't that an attractive idea that through persistent, dogged hard work, students who are at some kind of disadvantage can overcome the shadow of their backgrounds? even though we should acknowledge that the public school in San Francisco that Professor Duckworth taught at is actually the only one in the city that admits students based on academic merit. So once again, these are hardly, highly disadvantaged students. Because it's such an attractive idea, some schools are already beginning to implement curricular changes to teach grit. Professor Duckworth is affiliated with the Knowledge is Power Program, or KIPP, group of charter schools, which actually grades children's level of grit. The tests for the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which is how we can say 54% of American fourth graders read at a basic or below basic level in 2015, which is a true statistic, by the way, is going to start including measures of what is known as non-cognitive skills, which are grit, desire for learning, school climate, technology use, and socioeconomic status. The Program for International Student Assessment, or PISA, which is the test that compares how badly our students are doing compared with those in other countries, the US is around number 22 to 24 for reading literacy based on 2015 data, depending on how many of China's different territories are separated out or lumped together, is going to start measuring grit too. Schools in nine California districts have started teaching grit and are going to test students on it as well. Although in an irony of ironies, they're using behavioral modification techniques to do it. So they're not teaching students to be gritty for the sake of getting better at doing something that's important to them, but to see how long they can behave respectfully in class so they can win a prize, like 20 seconds of putting their feet on their desks or playing rock paper scissors. Seriously, I couldn't imagine a worse way to implement this. It also reminds me of the failed attempt to instill self-esteem in Californian students in the 1980s and 90s as part of an effort to make Californians more responsible and productive citizens and save the state a bundle of money by doing that as we discussed in our earlier episode on self-esteem. It turned out that self-esteem wasn't causally linked with academic performance at all. We can't say whether increasing self-esteem will cause a child's academic performance to improve. It might just be that students who do well in school have high self-esteem as a result. We covered that in much greater depth in the episode called Don't bother trying to improve your child's self-esteem. And it turned out that even Professor Duckworth is against this. She's resigned from the board of the group overseeing the rollout in California, saying she couldn't support using grit tests to evaluate school performance. In another aside here, there are a lot of asides in this episode. While I was doing research for a paper on multicultural issues in education for my master's, I was surprised to find a statement from a coalition of civil rights groups representing minorities opposing programs to opt out of standardized testing because standardized tests are the best measure that these groups have of the disparities in educational outcomes that their students attain. I do wonder if testing for grit could achieve a similar aim. Of course, I have no data on that at the moment. Professor Duckworth went into much more detail about her hesitation to measure grit in a paper she co-authored with Professor David Yeager at the University of Texas at Austin, which she wrote after she was summoned to the White House to discuss how grit could be used to improve achievement in schools. The paper provides a non-exhaustive list of 12 limitations of questionnaires and performance tasks used to assess things like grit. These limitations include the teacher or student, whoever's doing the reporting, misinterpreting the researcher's intent in asking the question. The questions may not take into account changes that occur over time. So if I just forgot my homework last week, I might say I'm less reliable than if I forgot my homework once last year. And as we've seen, tests are ridiculously easy to fake. Professors Duckworth and Jaeger suggest several elements of a path forward, firstly, arguing that if we must measure grit, we should use multiple measures of the characteristics we're interested in, which can be more reliable than just using one measure. Secondly, if we can come up with a way to measure grit that yields acceptable results and overcomes issues of differing language ability, cultural norms and the like, we don't yet have great information about what to do with that information on a statewide or nationwide basis. We can't say students who scored below a two on a grit scale should get intervention X to improve their grittiness because students have different reasons for not being gritty and won't all respond to a specific intervention in the same way. Thirdly, it's likely to be far more practical to assess an individual student's grittiness as part of the web of daily instruction that can tailor instruction to a student's individual needs. Finally, the authors conclude their introduction to the paper by saying not everything that counts can be counted and not everything that can be counted counts, which I think we should take as a maxim. But what if we were somehow magically or otherwise able to overcome the issues of measuring grit? Would that help struggling students to get ahead? Once again, the allure is strong. Could we give students from poor backgrounds a better advantage in school? Professor Mayer, who did the experiments on shocking rats, says about children from poor backgrounds, I worry a lot about kids in poverty. They're getting a lot of helplessness experiences. They're not getting enough mastery experiences. They're not learning, I can do this, I can succeed in that. My speculation is that these earlier experiences can have really enduring effects. You need to learn there's a contingency between your actions and what happens to you. If I do something, then something will happen, end quote. The problem here is that the approach assumes that poor children and prosperous children are essentially the same, except for their lack of mastery experiences. And if we could only change those, we could shift their outcomes. But David Denby, writing in The New Yorker, argues that this is not the case. Children who grow up in harsh environments can be badly hurt before they even leave infancy. And these harsh environments are often associated with poverty. It's not to say that poverty causes stress in children. But the conditions children find stressful are often found in poor households, although they can certainly also be found in some rich households too. David Denby's argument is based on journalist Paul Tuft's 2012 book, Helping Children Succeed, which argues that stress causes at least two reactions in children. Chronic stress causes chronically elevated levels of the hormone cortisol, which can compromise the child's immune system, and also create a stress response system that overprepared to fight back. Paul Tuff says, quote, small setbacks feel like crushing defeats. Tiny slights turn into serious confrontations. In school, a highly sensitive stress response system, constantly on the lookout for threats, can produce patterns of behavior that are self-defeating, fighting, talking back, acting up in class, and also, more subtly, going through each day perpetually wary of connection with peers and resistant to outreach from teachers and other adults, end quote. Secondly, excessive stress in early childhood can damage the development of the prefrontal cortex, which means that executive functions like memory, self-regulation, and cognitive flexibility don't develop properly. And These are exactly the types of brain structures that are needed for a person to develop grit. So it's entirely possible that we could diagnose a child as having low grit, but find that it was caused by circumstances entirely beyond their control, in which they may be powerless to change because it has become a structural part of their brain potential solutions to this problem abound, from improving parenting skills to providing better infant nutrition, from improving the quality of preschools to making them more affordable. But in the current political climate, it seems unlikely we are going to see any investment in children, even if it would most likely save a lot of money in the long run. You'd better have that baby, they say, but you're on your own and figuring out how to care for it. So getting off my soapbox, or the political one at least, I also want to take issue with the overall goals of developing grittiness. The book is stuffed with case studies on business people like Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates. Cat Cole is also featured. She was raised by a single mother and rose from being a waitress at Hooters, which, for those of you who live in more enlightened cultures, is a restaurant where the invariably beautiful waitresses wear low-cut tops and very short shorts, to becoming the CEO of Cinnabon, which sells calorically intense but otherwise nutritionally devoid baked goods, And she's now the group president of Focus Brands, which owns Cinnabon, as well as a half dozen other restaurants serving food of suspect nutritional quality. In her paper, Arguing Against the Measurement of Grit, Professor Duckworth says the grit scale was developed through exploratory interviews with lawyers, business people, academics and other professionals. But when you think about this some more, you come up with some troubling problems. Firstly, Jeff Bezos appears in the book several times, and each time you get a glimpse of either his creativity or his passion. His persistence is never discussed. Bill Gates used to decide which software programmers to hire by giving them a task that he knew would require hours of tedious troubleshooting to see which ones would stick with the task. No mention is made of their passion. Did they all go on to be incredible programmers? We have no idea. So do the two really always go together? Recruiting high achieving people and then designing a theory to fit around them, which you then apply to students who are coming from disadvantaged backgrounds, isn't exactly a scientifically valid way to understand what really makes people successful. How would we know what qualities other than grit contribute to these people's success? And how would we know about what prompted people who've been successful but aren't gritty to achieve that success? And what about other measures of defining success? Surely being rich and famous is not the only measure of success. We need a random sampling of people who are successful on a variety of measures to understand how important grit has been to their success, not a selection of successful famous people who agree to be interviewed because it's been important to them, supplemented with quotes from successful people's autobiographies that support the case for grit. And back to Kat Cole, while we can't argue that going from being raised by a single working mother who's struggling to make ends meet to a CEO probably takes both persistence and passion, is this really the kind of passion that we want in our world? The kind where our goal is to use women's bodies to peddle chicken wings and convince people they need a cinnamon roll that provides them with almost half of their recommended daily caloric intake? David Denby, the author of the New Yorker article, said that Professor Duckworth worked with the founder of KIPP and the head of a private school in New York to distill a long list of character traits into seven virtues. Great is one. The others are self-control, zest, optimism, social intelligence, gratitude, and curiosity. Denby notes that this list is devoid of any mention of anything like honesty, courage, integrity, kindliness, responsibility for others, ethics, or moral development. Indeed, at the beginning of Grit, when Professor Duckworth mentions the importance of being driven by a sense of purpose, it seems as though this purpose exists only to serve the individual. David Denby observes that the list would seem to be preparing children for personal success only, doing well at school, getting into college, getting a job, especially a corporate job where such docility, as is suggested by these approved traits like gratitude, would be much appreciated by managers. He goes on to say, putting it politically, the character inculcated in these students is perfectly suited to producing corporate drones in a capitalist economy. Putting it morally and existentially, the list is timid and empty. I've done a lot of reading over the last couple of years about where power lies in society and in schools, and I have to say that I agree with Denby's critique. We might know and choose not to think about it, or we might just never have thought about it before, as I had not before I started studying for all these master's degrees, but one of the major purposes of school is to pass on society's culture and values to the next generation. It is the government, the national government in many societies, with power increasingly being devolved to the states here in the U.S., that sets educational policy and works with private corporations to determine the curriculum that students must learn and will be tested on. Standardized tests are couched in the language of student success, but ultimately what we want them to be successful at is getting a job so they can earn money, pay taxes, and create demand for American products. And it's not just generic culture that's passed on, it's the cultural values of the dominant culture, which is why it's acceptable in schools to use language in the way that white children do, and not like many black children do. Families who don't speak English well are assumed to have values, histories, and ways of learning that are inferior to those of the dominant culture. And if only these families could learn to do things our way, their children would get on so much better in our society. Given what we've learned about the potential futility of telling children who have experienced emotional trauma when they were very young to be grittier, is it possible that children from non-dominant cultures may also find there are reasons they cannot or would not want to increase their own levels of grit? Perhaps the single-minded pursuit of excellence that Professor Duckworth espouses might be less than compatible with the familiar emphasis of Latinos, for example, who may not make decisions about individuals without consulting with the family. Paul Tufts' book, Helping Children Succeed, quotes a section of a report from 2012 called Teaching Adolescents to Become Learners, which was written by Professor Camille Farrington and her colleagues. Her review of the research on grit found that it actually may not be possible to instill a universal sense of grit in children, but it might be possible to increase their gritty actions in specific circumstances, like in studying at school. There are four key beliefs that cause a student to persevere more in the classroom. And these are firstly a sense that I belong in this community, secondly, that my ability and confidence grow with my effort, thirdly, that I can succeed at this, and fourthly, that this work has value for me. We don't have the time here to dissect each of these beliefs in depth, but I do want to briefly address two of them. Let's take the last one first this work has value for me. As we've already said, this is obviously a huge challenge in school where for most of the day, someone else has determined what the student will learn and how they will learn it. And the students learn that the best reason to persevere is that they get to put their feet up on their desks if they do. The first one, I belong in this community, is also a tough one for students who don't belong to the dominant culture when everything we teach in schools says they don't actually belong in school. We teach Native Americans that whites had a right to settle across the U.S. through their belief in Manifest Destiny, The first and often last thing we teach about black people is that slavery happened to them. And the state of Arizona prohibits students in predominantly Latino schools from taking a Mexican American studies course, even though students in that course showed higher academic achievement than students who didn't take that course. More than half of our students are now of a race other than white, but over 80 percent of teachers are white. Many studies have shown that it's difficult for people in general and teachers in particular to have empathy for people who are different from them. And empathy is a critical precursor for developing the kind of relationship with a student that would lead them to believe, I belong in this community. So who then is grit for? Is it possible that it's mostly for white and Asian parents? Professor Duckworth's maiden name is Lee. her parents were immigrants from China, who seem to care most about wanting their children to get ahead. And how much can it actually help them to get ahead anyway? Well, perhaps not as much as we might think from reading Grit and from watching Professor Duckworth's TED Talk. Professor Marcus Creed, which might also be pronounced crudet, I've seen it written both ways, published a study in 2017 called Much Ado About Grit, a meta-analytic synthesis of the grit literature. Anya Kamenetz, a journalist for NPR, poured through that highly technical paper and simplified one of its key findings for us. In 2009, Professor Duckworth and a co-author said that West Point cadets' score on the GRIT test was highly predictive of whether or not they would make it through basic training. The exact phrasing they used was, cadets who scored a standard deviation higher than average on the GRIT S, or a short form of the GRIT scale, were 99% more likely to complete summer training. But it turns out that while the tables and statistics in Professor Duckworth's paper are entirely correct, Her phrasing leads us to believe that the grittiest cadets are 99% more likely to get through basic training. Perhaps they bounce from, say, 40% to close to 80% likely. But what actually happened was that 95% of all cadets get through basic training compared to 98% of the very grittiest candidates. The difference is that the odds of making it through improved by 99%, or in other words, by three percentage points. Professor Duckworth conceded this point in an email to Anya Kamnetz reiterating that the tables and statistical analysis is correct and her intent was not to mislead. Professor Duckworth doesn't cite the statistics in her book, but she does describe the study in a way that implies that the GRIT score makes a massive difference between who succeeds and who fails. She says, by the last day of basic training, 71 cadets had dropped out. GRIT turned out to be an astoundingly reliable predictor of who made it through and who did not. The next year, I returned to West Point to run the same study. This time, 62 candidates dropped out. And again, grit predicted who would stay. In contrast, stayers and leavers had indistinguishable whole candidate scores. So what matters for making it through basic training? Not your SAT scores, not your high school rank, not your leadership experience, not your athletic ability, not your whole candidate score. What matters is grit. This association between grit and success is held up high throughout the book, as well as in Professor Duckworth's TED Talk where she says one characteristic emerged as a significant predictor of success and it wasn't social intelligence, it wasn't good looks, physical health, and it wasn't IQ, it was grit. As Alfie Cohen points out though, what does this actually prove? That people who say on a questionnaire that they stick with things actually stick with things? Surely what Professor Duckworth is actually testing is the candidate's honesty, not their grit. The effusive blurbs on the book cover go even beyond Professor Duckworth's own dramatic pronouncements. Daniel Gilbert, the author of Stumbling on Happiness, says, Psychologists have spent decades searching for the secret of success, but Duckworth is the one who has found it. She not only tells us what it is, but how to get it. Susan Cain, the author of Quiet, the power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking, which we've looked at previously in an episode on supporting your introverted child, says, impressively fresh and original grit scrubs away preconceptions about how far our potential can take us buy this send copies to your friends and tell the world there is in fact hope we can all dazzle don't we all want to dazzle don't we all want to know the secret that will help us do it well it turns out that grit might not actually be the secret Professor Creed or Crede's meta-analysis reviewed 88 studies and found the correlation of 0.18 between grit and academic success. For those of you who have been out of school for a while, a correlation describes a relationship between two factors or variables. A correlation of zero says there is no relationship between the variables, and a correlation of one says there's a perfect relationship. And most importantly, correlation and causation are very different. Just because we can say there's a relationship doesn't mean we can say which variable impacts the other. Professor Duckworth herself found a correlation of point 0.2, which she says, what personality psychologists would describe as a small to medium effect of grit on academic success. Now, a correlation of point 0.2 isn't nothing. I was recently corresponding with a friend who's on the verge of getting a PhD in something I don't fully understand related to global health, which has a very heavy statistics component about the impact of homework on academic outcomes. It turns out that the correlation there is about 0.16, so lower than the correlation for GRIT. And my friend described the homework correlation as, quote, not a bad correlation at all in the real world. It's the difference between failing a class and getting a C or going from a B to an A+. So GRIT is one of a host of factors that predict student success and nowhere near as high a predictor as, say, either an SAT score or a high school GPA on a student's first-year college GPA, which have correlations in the neighborhood of 0.5, and is hardly the single unique quality that will enable all of us to dazzle. It would be remiss of us if we fail to examine whether grit is even a trait we want to encourage because by encouraging grit, we have to discourage something else. If we encourage single-minded pursuit of academic success, we're discouraging other things that a student could be spending time on, like being creative, or simply being a generalist. Some careers require expertise in one topic, but others derive a great deal of value from pulling together disparate experiences into a whole that's greater than its parts. If we encourage our children to demonstrate the proficiency on standardized tests, they necessarily have less time available to spend on something they might have chosen to study and pursued with single-minded passion if they had had the time. Grades and test results are someone else's judgment of how well a student is doing, If a student were instead engaged in something they actually found interesting themselves, it's much more likely they would have become their own toughest critic because they would actually care about the work products and not just the A at the end. So as usual, we draw to a close by asking what parents are supposed to do with this information. Well, if you're a white or an Asian parent, I guess you should start by acknowledging that if your child is in one of those schools down the road from my house where I know a decent number of my listeners live, and if grit is being touted in that school as the amazing thing that's going to level the playing field for historically disadvantaged students, then now you know there's a good chance that grit is not going to be the thing that saves these students And in fact, there's a good chance that grit is going to be the thing that puts ever more distance between these students and your student who may come from a relatively more well-advantaged background. And that grit may be the thing that helps your student to succeed in school and college and in the corporate world if that's important to you. So if after all that you're thinking grit is something you'd like to nurture, how do you do it? Well, first, allow your child to experiment with lots of different activities. If they enjoy ballet or soccer or whatever for one class, then they might want to participate for a season, but they might not. Ask your child. Make this initial learning more like play than learning if possible. This approach is more likely to hold your child's interest and experimenting with different activities gives them a chance to gain context for what they like and what they don't. Once the child does commit to the activity, make sure they understand the value of deliberate practice that's designed to identify their weaknesses and work on these so they're no longer weak. One of Professor Duckworth's studies found that students who had learned about deliberate practice were more likely to give advice to other students related to practicing and were also more likely to choose to do more deliberate practice in math rather than messing about on social media. For those who hadn't been doing well in school, this led to increased performance as measured by their grades. So once your child settles on an activity, make practice a habit, something they don't even have to think about starting every day. Next, don't be afraid of allowing your child to fail. Really, it's how they learn. Toddlers fail all the time and then they get up and they try again. When we rush over to help them out, we teach them that failing is shameful, that it's something to be feared. Once you fear failure, you won't stick your neck out and take a risk, which makes it more difficult to get better. When your child comes to you with a success or a failure, what you say next tells them how you view that success or failure. If you say you're a natural, you show that you value innate talent. If you say you're a learner, you show that you value the effort that it took to do the activity, even if your child isn't a natural at it. If you say, well, at least you tried, your child may not learn to pick herself up and try again. If you say, well, that didn't work, let's talk about how you approached it and what might work better. Your child learns that failure is just another step on the learning journey. These examples might sound familiar to you as being related to what Professor Carol Dweck calls the growth mindset, the idea that qualities like intelligence are not fixed but can be changed through learning. I think we're gonna have to do an episode on that sometime soon. Over time your child will internalize these ideas as self-talk that she can use to reframe her own failures into lessons from which she can learn, but she may still need your helping hand to identify new strategies to try to suggest people who may be able to offer expertise, to just listen while she figures things out. And in many ways, it's a harder role than just fixing the thing for her. In the longer run, it's likely to pay off. But the best lesson that I got out of Brit and the one that I plan to put into effect in our house is called the hard thing rule, which has three parts. Firstly, everyone in the family has to do a hard thing, something that requires daily deliberate practice. I'm already doing mine. My research for this podcast and my master's in education is my hard thing. I love it, but it's still hard work, especially the statistics part. Although my husband says that my hard thing should be cleaning the house, he definitely thinks I need to practice at that. My daughter isn't really old enough at three to choose a hard thing, but in a couple of years, I'll ask her to choose one. My husband is having a hard time deciding on his hard thing. His best suggestion yet is to stop looking at his phone during every free second of the day. The second part of the hard thing rule is the part that I like the best. You can quit, but not until a natural stopping point has arrived. So the season is over, the tuition payment is up or something like that. My daughter isn't in any classes yet, but I've been wondering what might be the appropriate balance of sticking with something without forcing her to do it for my sake rather than hers. The idea is that you have to finish what you committed to in the beginning, which means you can't just quit on a bad day. The final part of the hard thing rule is that you get to pick your hard thing. Obviously, you should pick something you enjoy, and you should let your child pick something she enjoys. You don't get to force her into piano lessons for her hard thing if she prefers soccer or football. Again, note the irony of allowing your child to pick their hard thing, but somehow hoping without any apparent evidence that the resulting grit will translate to environments where passion is not present, that is contradicted by the evidence found in Professor Farrington's report. Interest in the topic should help to get you or your child through the bad days, so you can really make a decision when the season is over or the tuition payment is up about the totality of your experience and whether you want to do more of it, rather than just whether it sucks right now. And by modeling a hard thing yourself, you're providing your child with exactly the kind of role model he needs to become more gritty himself. I plan to only ask my daughter to pick one hard thing, and I don't plan to obsess over whether she's becoming better at anyone else at it. To me, that feels like an appropriate balance of learning what it's like to be gritty and not getting obsessed with the idea that grit is the be all and end all of success in life. The actor Will Smith is quoted in the book as saying, I'm not afraid to die on a treadmill. I will not be outworked, period. You might have more talent than me, but if we are on the treadmill together, there are two things. You're going to get off first or I'm going to die. It's really that simple. I'm not interested in raising a child who is so caught up in proving that she's the best at something that she has to outcompete everyone else. She might become highly successful, but it doesn't seem as though she'd be much fun to be around. And ultimately, achieving balance between being productive and being satisfied with what one has achieved seems to be a better outcome than someone who would rather die than get off a treadmill before someone else. So in sum, grit may be one of several traits that are important to a child's success in life, which Professor Duckworth does acknowledge in her own conclusion, after she spent a whole book telling us how important grit is. Indeed, she says in the National Geographic article that there is more that we don't know than we do know. But grit by no means is the only characteristic that's important. Professor Duckworth says she thinks goodness is more important than greatness. You should also be wary of school-based interventions that promise to increase grit, especially if they're delivered in a one-size-fits-all basis, using rewards to get children to do it, and doubly especially if they promise to level the playing field between privileged and underprivileged children. Perhaps the best thing you could do on that front would be to mentor an underprivileged youth so that they too can learn from you what it means to be gritty, and you can also talk with them about what components of grittiness are a fit with their culture. Don't lose sight of the fact that committing to a goal and sticking your head down and doing the work should also be balanced by looking up every once in a while and making sure the goal is still the right one. College and a corporate job is not the right fit for all children. I have to assume, because Professor Duckworth's research only focuses on high achievers, that grit can benefit people from all walks of life with all kinds of life goals. Finally, consider implementing the hard thing rule when your child is old enough to choose her hard thing for herself. It could be just the balance you need between allowing your child appropriate choices and helping her to see the value of sticking with a thing, even when it gets tough. Thanks for listening. All the references from today's episode can be found at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash grit.
0: Thanks for joining us on this episode of Your Parenting Mojo. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes and sign up for our mailing list at yourparentingmojo.com to receive a free gift seven relationship-based strategies to support your children's development while making parenting just a little bit easier on you. For more respectful, research-based parenting ideas to help kids thrive, we'll see you next time on Your Parenting Mojo.